Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine Podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Our theme for this episode is Going Green. And first off, we will stop over at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy, editor and publisher of Family Tree Magazine, who has some ways for you to go green with your research. Then we'll cover the latest happenings in the genealogy world with the genealogy insider blogger, Diane Haddad. She's going to tell us what's new at Family Search. In our top tips segment, author Rick Kroom will give us some space-saving ideas and ways to make our environment more friendly from his article, Wide Open Spaces. And in our 101 best websites for tracing your roots, we're going to head on down south and I'm going to take you on a tour of the Digital Library of Georgia. Then our own in-house preservationist, Grace Dobush, will bring us another installment of safekeeping. And finally, in the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, genealogy instructor Nancy Hendrickson will be here to give us some great tips from her Digital Photography Essentials course at Family Tree University. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. once again to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. So we're uh, talking about going green in this episode. Um, what does that bring to mind for you? What have you got going these days? Um, one thing that I think that we can do as genealogists who re- and readers of Family Tree magazine would be to just get rid of all of that paper you've been accumulating and get magazines on CD or in electronic format. Cool. Now, you, I know through Family Tree Magazine, um, have the CD compilations. How do those work? I mean, you just pop them in your computer and and go? Are you, are you turning pages? Can you search them? Well, it's pretty much just an electronic version of what you would see on the printed page. So the magazines themselves are in PDF format, which you can view on Adobe Reader. Pretty much everyone has that software, but if not, it's free to download. And you just scroll from page to page through the magazine. You can jump from the table of contents or a line on the cover to that specific story, so that's really convenient. And probably my favorite thing about electronic issues is the searchability. Whereas you have to kind of flip through lots of articles and maybe you, you've you got a particular article in mind that you want to refer back to and you can't remember which issue was that in or what page was that on. And in paper, obviously, you're looking through the entire magazine to try and find it. Well, on the electronic version, all you have to do is search. So the contents of our CDs, it's one year on a single CD, or we do have a DVD that has all 10 years of Family Tree Magazine on it. You can search all of the contents at once and find every article that matches your search. Wow. So the DVD that has all 10 years, you mean you could actually get all that paper off your shelf and then you have it all could. searchable? Because I do that all the time. I'm always referring back to my past issues. Um, how fantastic to be able just to search for the topic that you need and jump right to it. Yeah, it's really a time saver. In fact, it's a time saver for our staff, too, since we produce that DVD. You know, we get a lot of questions from customers and readers saying, you know, I'm looking for something you've published on this topic. Can you tell me when it appeared? 
And instead of having us to go through our index or um, flip through the different magazines, we can do that search and it takes us just a few seconds as opposed to where it used to take a lot longer. So we certainly find it convenient and we think that many of our readers do too. Um, One really nice suggestion that uh, one of our readers had made was they wanted to save space by going digital. So they purchased back issue CDs and then they donated all of their old copies to the local genealogical society so that those can continue to be a resource for other people. Oh, that's a great idea. You know, it's it's so fun. You know, you get your magazine in the mail, and it, it, there's still something wonderful about sitting down on the couch and just leaping through it and being able to grab it and take it with you when you have to go sit in the doctor's office or something. But in the long run, uh, once you've kind of enjoyed that experience, how nice just to have it nice and compact and searchable. So, Tell us, how far back do they go and how recent do they go in terms of what you can get on CD? Right. Well, we are producing electronic versions of all of our issues as soon as they're published in print. So if you were to visit shopfamilytree.com, you could get a digital download of each issue at the same time that it comes out in print. Um, If you're a subscriber... We do produce the CDs um, of a whole year, obviously, once the year is through. We can't do it before we've created all of the issues. But so we'll have the 2010 back issue CD available sometime um, in late October, early November. And then there's another option that people can take advantage of, and that is our Family Tree Magazine Plus subscription, which is all of our archive content on our website, familytreemagazine.com. That's an annual membership fee as opposed to a one-time CD purchase. Um, but the nice thing about that is you get all of the content in one place, just like the 10-year DVD, but it's also adding new content as we publish it. So we do have lots of options for folks who are interested in taking advantage of the electronic formats. Well, if you are interested in any of those different options, we're going to have links for you in the show notes for each one of them. Great resource and a great way to go green. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you. Well, it's time to uh, check in at the genealogy blogosphere and find out what's going on. And the person to do that with is Diane Haddad, the official blogger at Genealogy Insider. Hi, Diane. Hi. So uh, what's new? I know that you just got back from a major conference. Tell us what's going on out there in the world of genealogy. Well, I think the most exciting thing that I wanted to tell everyone about is the FamilySearch beta website. And I don't know if people have heard of this site. It's been kind of a sneaker. (laughs) Um, But it is a site where FamilySearch is implementing a lot of the changes that um, they're planning to um, incorporate into the main FamilySearch site. Right. Now, explain the difference, because there are a couple of different sites out there, and some the general public has access to, and some they don't. Right. Um, the main family search site is the one everybody's used to with all the research guides and the ancestral file and the pedigree research file. Um, the family search record search pilot is another site that's public, and that is one that has been out for a while, and that's where family search is putting their 
digitized records um, that people can go search and that the Family Search Indexing volunteers have been indexing. Well, Family Search Beta, it's a little bit newer than the pilot site, and all of those digitized records that have been on the pilot site are now on Family Search Beta. And the search improvements and the navigation improvements, those are all being made on Family Search Beta. So that's now the place to go to search Family Search records. And again, that's open to the public then? Yes. Wonderful. Yes. So what are some of the new upgrades they've been talking about? Well, um, recently they did finish adding all of those records from the pilot site, so those are all searchable on the beta site now. They changed the web address of the beta site. It's beta.familysearch.org. So if you've been getting there in other ways, it'll redirect, so you'll still be able to um, use any old URL that you might have been using They've created an alphabetized list of all the record collections on the beta site, and it's important to note that those are mostly alphabetized by the place where the record was collect was created. So, um, for example, the World War I draft registrations are under U.S. as opposed to World War. Oh, okay. So more by location. Yeah. You can filter search results there. The search is much more sophisticated than the search on the record search pilot with more fields, and you can designate terms as exact. So it's, it's easier to use than the record search pilot. Wow, great. Now, I know that you have been blogging about this. Tell us where we can kind of get the whole rundown on the Genealogy Insider blog. Well, we have just put a post up today about the, um, the major updates to the Family Search beta site. And then also during the Federation of Genealogical Societies conference, which was last month, we had another update that was um, with news that Family Search announced during a media breakfast they had. Great. Well, I'll have a link to that post um, on the show notes for this podcast episode, as well as uh, her post called Major Updates to Family Search Beta Site. That was from September 8th of 2010. And we'll have those for you in the show notes so you can check out all the new things going on at Family Search. Um, hey, thanks for the update, Diane. You're welcome. Are you feeling crowded by genealogy papers, books, photos, and other stuff? Well, Rick Kroom is here to help us save space with 10 ideas to get your clutter under control. And these are coming from his brand new article called Wide Open Spaces from the November 2010 issue of the magazine. Welcome back to the show, Rick. Hi, Lisa. Hi. You know, this has got to be the most popular topic I can think of in the world of genealogy. Even over finding our ancestors is how in the world do we keep things organized and under control? And and you really do have 10 great ideas here. Um, let's just jump into them because I know people are probably sitting on their edge of their seat saying, help me, help me. Number one, you've got here, purge your papers. Is that possible? <laughs> Aren't all these papers just precious? Well, that's a problem. Uh, we might, uh, at first glance, think that we just can't possibly throw away any of our precious papers that we've accumulated over the years researching our family history. But when you actually sit down and go through your mountains of paper, if you have anything like mine, uh, you can probably find a lot of, of things that you really don't need and that you could discard. Your first inclination might be, well, I'll just scan everything, and then I'll just have everything on my computer, and I won't need to deal with the paper files anymore. But scanning takes some time, 
and I think um, it's more efficient to go through your papers first and um, discard what you really don't need to save. For example, I used to print out everything. Um, if I'd find an entry uh, in a census record, I'd print out the census record. I'd print family group sheets, pedigree charts, copies of email messages, everything. <laughs> Most of that stuff is on my computer anyway, or it's on the Internet, and I can refer to it for free at any time. So why save a printed copy of it? Uh, of course you want to save historical documents, but a lot of the ongoing, everyday things that you print, that you might print out, and maybe used to print out a lot more than you do today, when you think about it, maybe you really don't need to save it. So I recommend going through your papers and discarding what's not irreplaceable. Anything that you can easily find online, you don't need to save on paper. Oh, I totally agree. Um, you know, purging your papers, it's its hard to believe. But yeah, there are some that need to go. And in fact, I have a friend and I think some people just feel more comfortable with tangible stuff, you know, paper stuff. And she would print out absolutely everything. And and then it becomes, like you say, kind of a burden, and it slows down the whole process. So um, very good advice. Now, the second item you have here is digitize, digitize. And you have mentioned a scanner that really caught my eye, this Visioneer Strobe 500. And, you know, it's a great recommendation, because not only does it do scanning, but it does the OCR technology. Tell us about that. What can, What can that do for us? Well, right. Um, PC Magazine gave the Visioneer Strobe 500 scanner, it's kind of a personal document scanner and document manager, a very high rating. And it scans up to 30 pages per minute and saves them as PDF files so you can organize them on your hard drive. So it works really well if you have a lot of papers that are, especially if you have a lot of letter-sized papers, you could scan them quickly, but it also ha handles other sized documents, too. Of course, you wouldn't want to use this on, on old, um, important family documents, but on anything that you've just printed out as part of your ongoing genealogy research, maybe pages from websites or maybe even correspondence with other genealogists, those are the things that you could really scan quickly and maybe you don't need to save those papers anymore, or if you want to save them, you could store them off-site. But once you get them on your computer, then you can really organize them well, too, and that makes it easy to find them in the future. Yeah, so you can just feed them through the document um, feeder, and then it says that you can actually have it do the OCR so that you can search these documents, right? They're editable, formatted text. That's pretty cool, where you could actually have it take a look at it optically and allow you to search through them later. That's right. It saves the documents as PDF files. I think only the um, Windows version has that feature, not maybe the, the Macintosh version. But that means that you could search for a word anywhere in the text of those documents that you've scanned. So that makes it a lot easier to find something than it would be um, if you had to browse through a bunch of paper files. Exactly. Oh, for a word, almost like you know, doing a Google search and find the matching document right on your computer. Exactly. Oh, that would be great. Now you also have in here. Oh, let's see. Gosh. Well, get a space-saving computer. And it was funny, you know. I was like, oh, I guess that's that's true. You know, because a lot of times we've got these big old desktops. 
But I noticed recently, um, oh gosh, about a year ago, I finally got rid of that old monitor, the big, huge box monitor. I feel like I got a whole new desk <laughs> because there's so much space. That's a great tip. I have to admit, a lot of these tips um, are, are kind of a um, matter of do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> as we speak, I'm sitting at a computer with a nice, um, thin monitor, but on the other side of the desk, there's a huge cathode ray tube monitor hogging half the desk, <laughs> and I have to figure out what to do with it. But, but it's so true. And the tip we have here is to get an all-in-one computer with the monitor built in. So that takes up even less space than a, a typical computer with a flat screen monitor. Yeah, exactly. I mean, probably a very good investment, not only just to get the the upgraded uh, capabilities of the computers, but then, like you said, to get so much more desk space. That's right. Um, I put my desktop computer on the floor beside my desk, so it doesn't. it's not so bad. But if you're a genealogist, you really need to work on saving every um, bit of space you can and making the best use of every square inch, I think. A computer with a monitor built in could be um, one part of that process. And, you know, when you talk about uh, making the most use of your space, of course, our, our bookshelves, same issue. And you have on here, lighten your library. In fact, I was just doing this uh, last week because it is surprising how you think, oh, no, I worked so hard to, to collect every one of those books and magazines. But things do evolve over time. And some I absolutely want to keep forever. But I have found that some things... I really don't need any more. Um, tell us, what do we do with some of these books? It, you don't feel like you can just throw them away. Well, uh, if you're talking about books, you might be able to find a, a digital version online. There are quite a few sites like the Internet Archive, um, Google Books, the BYU Family History Archive that have um, free family history and local history books that you can download to your computer, usually as PDF files. So again, they're searchable. And while you might not be able to bear Starting with those books, maybe you can store them off-site and use the digital version for ongoing reference. Oh, that's a great idea. We don't have to necessarily get rid of them or, or give them away. I know a lot of people at my local genealogy society will bring in you know, resources and materials they don't use anymore and put them on the freebie table, and people can come in and grab what might apply to their research. But if you really want to hang on to them, you could store them, what, in a big box and put them off-site or in another room? Sure, yeah, I think that's a workable idea. I'm terrible about bringing myself to throw anything away, including old genealogy journals and magazines. So another tip we have in this article is to get digital versions of those journals and magazines, too. For example, you can get annual compilations of all of the issues of Family Tree magazine, all of the issues from one year on a CD, or the whole first decade on a DVD. That takes up a lot less space than the magazines. Um, some genealogy societies, like the New England Historic Genealogical Society, now make their journals available in digital format, so you can just download their quarterly journal. I hate to tell you how much space um, is taking up on my bookshelves with old genealogy journals and magazines, and not to mention under my bed. But if <laughs> they're just boxed up under my bed, I can't get at them very well anyway. So it's much better to have them taking up a little bit of space on my computer's hard drive where I can easily access them and in many cases even search them for um, a word anywhere in the whole kit and caboodle. So. 
that's the other big advantage, isn't it? Is that when you get the compilation CD, like of the Family Tree magazine, it's searchable. So you're not rifling through, you know, issue after issue, you can just do that search keyword and find it within 12 months of, of the magazine. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, that's so much more efficient, so much easier. And I find that I'm just better at organizing things on my computer than I am um, in paper files, too. But once I have things stored in folders by, let's say, place name or or surname, I know exactly where to go, but my paper files aren't quite that well organized. <laughs> well, and finally here, you have make it meaningful. What do you mean by that? How does that fit into our organizational strategy? Genealogists just have a natural inclination to save everything and anything that sheds light on our families, photos, letters, clothing, furniture, you name it. But the thing is, if you save so much stuff, it just might become a burden for someone in the future to go through everything. And if you don't have things properly labeled and stored, um, people just might not recognize the value of anything. And you really want to make sure that the most important things, the things that are really meaningful to your family's history, get saved. And to do that, it's important to store them carefully, label them so people recognize the importance of those items. And maybe there are other things that maybe you don't want to discard them. Maybe you can share them with other relatives for whom they might have a greater meaning or sell them or dispose of them somehow. But you really want to focus on preserving and labeling the most important artifacts associated with your family history so they have the best chance of being saved. I think that is wonderful advice. Gosh, we put so much time and effort into our research. And it's more than just research. We're trying to leave a legacy here. And I think that uh, keeping it organized and keeping it, like you say, not a burden means that, that there's a much better chance that it's going to survive well beyond our years. Rick, these are all such great ideas. For those of you listening, check them out. They are in the Family Tree Magazine November 2010 issue, and uh, it's a great way to, to get organized. And you have here, and save your sanity. That's a good thing. <laughs> Thank you for helping us save our sanity and our legacy. Thanks so much for joining us, Rick. You're welcome, Lisa. It was a pleasure. In today's 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots segment, we're going to visit a peach of a website. The Digital Library of Georgia is the gateway to more than 110 collections from 160 institutions and agencies giving you one-click access to a million digital files, including images, colonial wills, Confederate enlistment records, muster rolls, and pension applications, as well as seven historic newspapers. Now, if you're near your computer, head on over to dig.galileo.usg.edu, and I will have that link for you in the show notes for this episode. And let's go take a look around. There's a lot to see here, but let's focus in on their genealogical resources. Now, right off the bat, you notice the featured collection on the right side of the screen is the Atlanta Historic Newspaper Archive, which consists of 67,000 fully searchable newspapers ranging from 1847 to 1922. 
You gotta love all these great old images they have flashing on the homepage from old newspapers like the Atlanta Daily Examiner and the Weekly Constitution. For more on genealogy, click the reference shelf link, which you'll find there in the menu at the top of the page. And there you'll find quite a list. Just click on genealogical sources. At the top of that page, you're going to find links to some favorite genealogy sites, as well as the library's extensive Georgia history collection. Scroll on down further to the collections section. Some of these collections are available only to authorized users, but you will be able to browse several really interesting collections here, including the Southeastern Native American documents, 1730 to 1842. One of my personal favorites is the Vanishing Georgia Collection, which is made up of nearly 18,000 photographs. Ranging from daguerreotypes to Kodachrome prints, the images span over 100 years of Georgia history. You can narrow your search and do further exploring by using the menu on the left side of the page. Now, I really like this because you can not only browse by topic, and see what topics are actually available. But you can also browse by time period, county, institution, media type, or simply alphabetically. And that's really the key point. Because a website or collection is really only as good as the access that you have to it and your ability to find what you're looking for. And at the Digital Library of Georgia, you have a good chance of finding some great gems. everybody. This is Grace, the preservation expert at Family Tree Magazine. With new technology coming out on the market all the time, we get a lot of questions about scanners from our readers. Some of the new scanners coming out are smaller than ever and even more powerful. I've got a roundup of some of the best new portable options for your scanning projects in this edition of Safekeeping. Some of these wand and pen scanners that can fit in your bag really get the point across that we're living in the future. Who'd have thought it'd be possible to copy documents with a wave of your hand, even five years ago? First up, we have two scanning pens. The Plan-On DocuPen X series is a mere 2.5 ounces and is rechargeable through a USB cable. This little stick-like pen, you just wave it over anything that you want to scan, and it will pick it up into your computer in black and white or color, and it scans up to 1,200 dots per inch, which is pretty high resolution if you've ever dealt with scanners before. It saves only to JPEG and TIFF format, so those are images, but it does work with both Windows and Mac operating systems, which is great. As far as storage goes, it uses an SD memory card, so you've got a lot of space to store your scans. The downside, of course, is that it runs $300 to $400 for one of these DocuPen Xs. If that's a little out of your price range, you can try the Viewpoint Magic Wand, which is only about $100. It does weigh 7.5 ounces to the DocuPen's 2.5 ounces. But it also uses a micro SD card and can store up to 32 gigabytes of information. 
It's good on Windows and Mac machines. Scans up to 600 DPI, which is perfectly good. And it also is a free scanning pen, meaning that you can scroll it over anything that you want to copy. It only scans to JPEG, not TIFF format. And it uses two AA batteries, so this is truly cordless. Now for something a little different. We've got a pen scanner that recognizes text that you highlight. So this isn't going to capture images for you, but if you need to copy bits of information from documents, I can think of a lot of people who might want to be copying information from uh, ledgers or books at a local archive. The Iris Pen 6 comes in three versions, the Express, the Executive, or the Translator, and runs $129 to about $200. They're powered by USB, and you do have to have it plugged in your computer while you're using it. It uses Windows or Mac. All you have to have is a USB port to get it to work. What it does is scroll it over to highlight the areas of text that you want to copy, and it will import that text to any application that you want, such as Microsoft Word, any other word processing software, Excel, or a specialized program. It uses OCR, that's optical character recognition, to pick up the information to put into your computer. And it has OCR for 128 languages. Now that's not translation, that's just for recognizing the characters, but still it's pretty impressive. The translator version of the Iris Pen does actually do translation for you in six languages. If you're working mainly with loose leaf sheets of regular sized paper, these next two scanners can work for you. They're both sheet fed portable scanners, meaning that you have to actually scroll a document through it, which isn't great if you're working with a book or odd shaped pieces of paper. But if you are working with regular sheets of paper, these can be really great. The Iris Scan Anywhere 2 is about $199 and is battery rechargeable through a USB cable. It doesn't have to be connected to your laptop to run because it does have an SD card which stores the information for you. It can run on Windows or Mac and just requires a DVD drive and a USB port to work. It can scan up to 600 DPI resolution and it saves the images in JPEG form. It doesn't have to be connected to your computer, so this is truly portable, and it only weighs about a pound. The HP Scanjet Professional 1000 is a little bit more expensive. It's about $150, but it does have to be connected to your computer through a USB port to be powered and also to save the information that you're scanning. It doesn't have its own memory. It does work on Windows and Mac and scans up to 600 DPI. The great thing about the HP ScanJet is that it can scan to PDF, TIFF, JPEG, and many more file formats, which gives you a lot of flexibility there. And finally, we've got one interesting scanner that isn't out yet even. It's a flatbed that you can flip. So this does look like a normal scanner, but the cool thing is is that you can flip it over to scan things that are an unusual shape or perhaps are connected to uh, something that can't be moved. It's called the Flip Pal. It costs $150 and runs on four AA batteries. It uses SD memory cards and runs on Windows or Mac and you connect it to your computer just through a USB port. So the cool thing about that is that you can scan strangely shaped or textured objects without having to, you know, wrangle it into your flatbed scanner.
Visit the podcast show notes page to see all the details on the scanners I talked about today. If you've got any comments on portable scanners you've used, put your thoughts in our products forum at forum.familytreemagazine.com. Until next time, stay safe. Photography is an essential tool for genealogists, not only for capturing family memories now, but also for preserving old documents and heirlooms. In this Family Tree University Crash Course segment, I've invited Family Tree University instructor Nancy Hendrickson to the show to share some tips from her Digital Photography Essentials class. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. This is something that I think is of interest to everybody. Um, start us off by giving us kind of an, a quick overview of the kinds of things that we might be learning in the Digital Photography Essentials class. Okay. Uh, first of all, you know, digital photography is, has really been a boon to genealogists because, you know, back in the day, you could take a genealogy trip, take photographs, and not realize till you get home and develop the film that you've missed the shot you really wanted to get. So digital cameras have allowed us to sit on the spot and make sure that, that we have at least, you know, a shot that we like. It may not be perfect, but we know we got the shot. Uh-huh. So in this class, in this class, uh, we really talk about how to shoot people, places, and things. You know, you talked about uh, taking images from today versus, you know, preserving old photos. When taking uh, pictures of people today, I found that, that very frequently people take pictures from such a large distance that the person is tiny and the scene is huge. And one of the things we really talk about is how to get a great portrait and how to get unique portraits, not only of an individual, but of a group. And when we talk about shooting places, we talk about how to shoot buildings, how to shoot interiors of churches, if it's allowed. Some churches want to allow you to do photography inside. But if you can imagine standing in front of a very large historic church where your family may have gone, unless you have an ultra-wide-angle lens, it's very hard to capture that whole image. So in the class, we really show how to break that down into segments and how to capture really interesting details of a building, like the windows, the hardware on the door, just the steeple. And when we talk about things, we're talking about how to photograph those family mementos, like your grandmother's teacup or your great-grandfather's razor-type shaver. So we cover all that, and we also cover what to do with damaged old photos. We use a a free online photo service, and I've done a video showing people how to remove, how to digitally remove mold from old photos or scratches and tears. Or, I don't know if you remember, but in the 1970s, photos taken in that period, for some reason, have faded horribly. And you get really weird colors, and um, they don't look anything like they should have. And I show a really easy trick of how to restore a lot of the original color, again, using this free online service. So those are the types of things we learn. We really kind of go from photo restoration to how to capture images today. What I love about that class is that 
you're you're covering the gamut, not only going back and kind of fixing the, the problems that we're currently facing with our old photographs, but then how to get the better quality from the ones going forward. Because um, I know with my in my own genealogy work, I had inherited some things and, and tried to take individual photographs of each item so I could document these heirlooms and where they'd come from. And boy, I found it was really tricky just to get the lighting right so that you could see the item. <laughs> it is. And in fact, that's a tip I'd actually like to, to talk about right now if we have time. Oh, yes, please. One of the things that we learn in class, and it's something that listeners can do today, is, uh, you know, I mentioned grandmother's teacup. If you go buy a piece of just basic poster paper, uh, you know, a dark poster paper that does not have a shiny, it's a matte finish, and if you prop it up against against something and set the teacup on it, you basically have set up a very professional-looking background. There's no distraction. It's not like your kitchen table or the wall is in the background. All you have is this dark poster board. And if you set it so that light doesn't bounce off the object, because light is an issue, you can take a really professional-looking image. And it looks like it was taken in a studio just by putting that poster board behind it and setting the object on the poster board. That would have solved the issue because that was one of the challenges. Yeah, having things, I kept finding there were other things in the picture and you end up not always clear what's the heirloom. <laughs> what is it we're supposed to be looking at? And I love that. It just isolates it and, and gives you a really good shot so that you can keep track of all your precious heirlooms. You do have to be careful of the lighting because on something with a shiny surface like the teacup, even light, even ambient light coming in from outside is going to hit that glossy surface and you'll get a hot spot in your picture. So it will take you manipulating, you know, where you move that poster board and where you move the, the shiny object to make sure you don't get those hot spots in your image. But I, I will guarantee you, you will end up with a, just a beautiful professional looking image. So try it. Go get, go get yourself some poster board. Great. We could do that. <laughs> Before I let you go, I have to ask you one of the most common questions that I hear from genealogists, which is about file format. What file format should we be saving our photographs in? You know, that's a great question. The most common, and, and again, I'm going to go back to most people's digital cameras, unless you have a very high-end digital camera. Most cameras will save in a JPEG format. And JPEG is fine for your digital images. However, you know, this is a cautionary tale that I, you know, I really stress in the class. If you take the image, put it onto your hard drive, you never, ever work with the original image. You always make a copy of it because every time you open an original JPEG and close it and open it and closing it, you're really, um, I'll put this in layman's terms, you're really um, messing with the compression of that file. So you really don't want to be opening and closing that original photo more than once. Open it, make a copy, and then store away that original. And, and when you're doing photo manipulation or image editing, as we do a lot of in this class, you know, we never work on original images. We always work on copies. So JPEGs are fine. Just don't keep opening and closing the original. 
That's a great tip. And it's and of course, JPEGs are a nice file size because they are compressed, but that sounds like what it's causing the the challenges. So great tip. We always have to then use a copy. You know, if if you really, if it matters to you, the quality of the photographs that you're taking today, and of course, the restoration of the precious ones that you have from yesteryear, you're going to love Nancy's class. It's called Digital Photography Essentials. It's available through Family Tree University. And you just got a crash course from Nancy on a couple of great tips that she could use right away. And uh, I guarantee you're going to learn a whole lot more in this class. Nancy, thank you so much for stopping by the podcast and sharing your expertise. I loved it. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me for the September 2010 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and visit the Genealogy Insider blog for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis at blog.familytreemagazine.com insider. Next, go to familytreemagazine.com podcast to find the show notes for this episode, which will include information and website links for everything we covered on today's episode, including links to Shop Family Tree, where you can pick up the compilation CDs and the plus membership that Allison told us about, as well as the November digital issue, which includes Rick Kroom's great article called Wide Open Spaces. Then take a trip down south by going to the Digital Archives of Georgia and don't miss their great newspaper collection. And finally, head on over to FamilyTreeUniversity.com where you can browse the upcoming classes and webinars, including Nancy Hendrickson's course called Digital Photography Essentials. If you have any questions or comments, email me at ftmpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I hope that you'll visit me at my website at genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcasts, the Genealogy Gems podcast, and Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. Both shows are also available through iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.